I'm Agnes Frimston. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Ben. Agnes. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? Scared. Why are you scared? No, I'm I'm very good. I'm good. very good. Um, it's been quite an intense day of interviews. It has. We've had an undercurrents day. We have had an undercurrents day. This is true. We've done we've done a lot of it. Well, two. But I'm amazed you can still stand <laughs> being in the media studio with me. <laughs> well, it's all right because we still haven't got our lamps. So that's great. That's true. Um, actually, the other thing uh, to say is, if you are listening, talking politics, we see you. <laughs> we see you. Interviewing people we've interviewed just a month later. Yeah, run us run us past the uh, the people that have currently appeared on the famous podcast Talking Politics after we've already interviewed them. Oliver Bullo. Oliver Bullo. What was he What was he talking about? He was talking about Moneyland, his oh, book. Yeah. Oh, and, that sounds familiar. Yeah, <laughs> which him and I discussed in length actually about five weeks before that interview. That's so true. And this week it's Sarah Churchwell. Oh, yes. Discussing Sarah. her books. America first, which is great. An excellent book. An excellent book, which excellent I told you, with you about a month ago. I know. So we've got a really great interview for you this week. One who I look forward to hearing on Talking Politics in about a month and a half. <laughs> um, <laughs> Can't wait. But That's when I catch up with all my current <laughs> interviews. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, Ben. It's fine. I think they just probably think we ask the wrong questions. <laughs> That occurred to you? Off. So much other stuff to ask, <laughs> Oliver. Anyway, yeah, so this week we've gone a bit rogue, haven't we, on the poor Matt? Yeah, that's true. We have taken an exception from our normal normal way of doing things because we love change. We do, we embrace change. We're, we're modernists. Absolutely. So we recorded two interviews today and the latter one was so long and so interesting that we thought we should put it out on its own, as its own episode. We should say it's not remotely a reflection on the first interview, the first which interview, was also great first and really interview is really good and will be out next week. And you will not separately. miss out on that interview. Um, but, yeah, so this the interview that we've just done is with Soroya Jamali, who is the author of a book called Rage Becomes Her, uh, The Power of Women's Anger. And Ben and I did this interview jointly, didn't we? We did, we did. Why was that, Ben? Um, to fulfil quotas. <laughs> <laughs> that is 100% not the reason we did that together. Yeah, we did it together because it's a really interesting topic and like yeah, and having a gender we balance to know and and yeah, and so often the gender conversation, subjects around gender mm. and stuff, it ends up being women talking to women about these things. Yeah. As our colleagues in episode nine i want to say yeah, Stefan Dubois and Roxanne Bilden said about their international policy forum on gender the major obstacle to that event is that they can't get enough men who want to come. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's bad. So in the spirit that of that, up. in fighting against that, Agnes dragged me in here by my ears, <laughs> tied me up to a chair <laughs> and forced me to listen. <laughs> forced him to record and participate. Fortunately, they did turn my microphone on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Not sure if that's fortunately, actually. <laughs> Somewhat dubiously, they chose to turn my microphone on. Anyway, should we have a listen? Let's have a listen. Great. So we are here, both Ben and I, for once. 
to speak to Soraya Chamali, who is the author of a new book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, published by Simon & Schuster. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me today. (laughs) Quite a lot to be angry about at the moment. Why did you write this book now? I wrote it in the immediate wake of Brexit and in um, Trump's election to the presidency. And I'd been writing about all of these issues related to social justice, inequality, the role that gender and various intersections play and the way we experience our, our lives. And it was just clear at that time in late 2016 that anger was palatable on all sides of the political equation. And so I thought it might make sense to look at the sort of state of the union through the filter of how this emotion is used politically and constructed socially. Because I was, we had a conversation in our office fairly recently where um, a female colleague and I realised that we've been angry every single day since Brexit. Right. <laughs> like maybe only for like 10 minutes, but every single day. Right. And obviously in the book you go into, you, you look at the sort of historic like repression of female anger. And do you think that that's changed? I think there are moments in our history, uh, times of political turmoil and chaos and extreme unpredictability, which is what we're living with, in which women are given more social leeway to be angry openly. But usually what happens is then there's a retrenchment and a doubling down on gender norms and expectations. So we're used to thinking of men's anger in political terms, but because we live with so many sort of binary dualisms and think of women as private citizens, not public citizens, we're expected to take our anger, as we keep being told online, back to the kitchen. I am deeply curious about what that will look like in five years and whether the women's activism that we're seeing today will be qualitatively different. Maybe actually, because despite the harms of the internet, and we all know what those harms are now, it has some benefits because to really understand the state of women's inequality, you have to look at it globally and you have to look at this authoritarian macho fascism globally and understand what's happening. And I think women today have something they didn't have before, which is that they can communicate, they can support each other, women's movements can work transnationally, they can build coalitions, because in fact the obstacles they face in terms of resources and power are global. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I thought a really interesting bit of the book was the racial elements of women's anger Mm -hmm. and how anger in women is treated very, very differently in, you know, white women or black women or Hispanic women. You know, I think Serena Williams at the US Open recently is a classic example of that. Um, Do you think that's changing? Honestly, I don't really. I think these stereotypes are deeply entrenched. Mm. I think that they are levers commonly used to silence first girls and then women. And so if you think of the angry black woman trope, And we certainly saw that in spades around the discussion of what happened at the U.S. Open. I think notably, perhaps the most important information to come out of the U.S. Open was that she was fined the highest ever fine for verbal abuse in the history of the Open, which is just absurd on the face of it, given what we know about the behavior of players Mm -hmm. on the court. 
But that policing of black girls and women starts when they're children. So in U.S. schools, black girls are far more likely to be suspended, disciplined, and expelled for what's categorized as belligerent and defiant and disrespectful behavior. But in fact, when that behavior is seen in young boys, usually young white boys, it's considered leadership potential or just boys will be boys rambunctiousness. And so the double standard starts early. If you're Hispanic, you're much more likely to be sexualized. She's Mm -hmm. hot and fiery. And if you're of Asian descent, it's more likely that you're expected to be docile and passive and sad. You know, we, we attribute sadness to girls when they're angry and we attribute anger to boys when they're sad. And that has lifelong effects on us. Mm. And I think it's also this idea that women historically have internalized their anger. So they have turned their anger in on themselves. You right. know, this is why self-harm is huge amongst you know uh, teenage girls, as is like eating disorders. Yes. It's that idea of like, I can't lash out, so I'm going to damage myself instead. And it contains it. And right. that, I think, again, that's incredibly gendered in a way that I don't think boys experience it similarly. Yeah, I mean, I think the harms are a little different because girls are socialized not to impose on others, to put other people's needs first. And as a result, anger is severed from femininity because anger is actually the language of self-defense and injustice. And if if you feel anger, it means something's wrong. You are being threatened, Something is being threatened, your safety, your status. So to ignore that emotion means ignoring that information. We're tasked with responsibility for emotionality in general, but not anger. So even parents reading to children will minimize angry incidents in books or the language of anger when they're reading to girls, but they'll maximize them with boys. Boys, on the other hand, are really cut off from access to the full range of their emotions because to be vulnerable or weak or empathetic or compassionate is considered a feminized quality. And boys are heavily policed. Actually, their gender is much more rigidly policed in the service of sort of a hegemonic masculinity. So the damage they do ends up being either suicide or violence to other people because they also are not allowed to manage the full spectrum of their emotions. But certainly girls and women, the the name of the book comes from the idea that it becomes material in our bodies. Chronic pain, stress, autoimmune disorders, uh, mental distress, anxiety, depression, self-harm, all of those things. And and honestly, I'd like the book to disrupt that. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's... Also cheery, isn't it? It's so cheery, right? Can I play devil's advocate here a bit? Classic. (laughs) Hello, chap. Oh, here we are. Lean in, white man. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just don't say not all men. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been angry in my life. Um, (laughs) My mum didn't say I could be angry. That's right. Um, No, uh, I just wondered whether, to an extent, a problem that we have in society at the moment, possibly coming to a head because of these mechanisms like social media, are driven by the fact that in political discourse and political life, anger itself is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's male anger or female right. anger. I mean, actually, the two things really jumped out, like examples while you were talking. Obviously, the Serena Williams example mm-hmm. at the US Open, really, really powerful and obviously incredibly controversial. 
but the other one, the flip side that I was trying to sort of compare it to was in the Brett Kavanaugh hearing um, in front of the Senate where he came out swinging, didn't he? He was right. really angry right. about all of this injustice that had been done to his reputation mm-hmm. and his family and stuff. And neither episode endeared me whatsoever to the person that was being angry, right? regardless of whether... And just because Brett Kavanaugh has maybe been brought up in a way that says he's allowed to do that, I don't know that that was a persuasive thing. I don't. I didn't go, oh, well, that's a man being cross, so I'm fine with it. Right. And I didn't... And actually, surely the solution <laughs> to both examples... I mean, it would be great if men, if male tennis players were less angry. <laughs> that would right. be the solution. Not not to say that everyone can be cross, right. but to say, actually, this is a game and there are certain ways that you just speak to one another. Civilly. If you've got And you just, yeah, politeness. And actually, rather than sort of embracing anger, we should be sort of having a serious conversation about how political discourse is held mm-hmm. and whether there are just more, whether we should be more civil. Well, several things occur to me. One is... The real similarity between those two is, to me, only in the word court, Mm. Mm. right? One's a game, Mm. and the issue to me was not how she behaved, but the disparate penalty, Mm. right? Everyone can agree that maybe it's better not to fly off the handle and to, even in the heat of the moment of competitive uh, sport, behave in ways that are not quite as explosive. Mm. But the issue to me was how she was punished for it. Right. If you're going to have a standard, have the standard. Mm -hmm. But in tennis, men that behave that way are dubbed bad boys, charismatic players. They're given Mm -hmm. advertising contracts Mm -hmm. for their bad behavior. And they get away with it. And they get away with it. Okay. So let's shift to the court. You and I may not have been impressed by Kavanaugh's bratty tantrum. Mm -hmm. But in fact, people who support Trump and are conservatives increased their support. Because he was demonstrating what they understood to be appropriate masculine indignance, and he acted in self-defense. So it was interesting to me that that support increased after his behavior. And the philosopher Kate Mann has this wonderful term, uh, empathy, which is an excessive sympathy for a man in a situation like his. Because in actuality, the person that should have had righteous indignation and rage Mm. and an assertive, maybe even aggressive, angry response was probably Dr. Ford. Mm. But she, of course, had to maintain her composure and be demure. And she was even conciliatory. And she used the word collegial, which actually was the most heartbreaking moment to me because it sounded as though she believed she was in a room of peers who would respect her equally and with dignity. And that was simply not the case. They just didn't do that. And so, yes, I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I generally think civility is valuable, but online it's not profitable. Mm. This is the mechanism online. The mechanism of online profitability is incivility and extremism and engagement and being civil does not encourage engagement the way being uncivil does so do you think social media is the thing that's kind of really brought this to the fore it's it's just such a powerful means of expressing anger and expressing these sort of sort of violent abusive emotions you know (laughs) on one hand i think it cultivates those exchanges Mm -hmm. 
But on the other hand, I think it actually just sheds light on what was already happening. And I think that's quite valuable because even as a woman who for years, for example, I, I don't think a month in my life since I was nine years old has gone by when I haven't been harassed on the street. Not a month, probably not even a week. And sometimes that harassment has been very ugly and threatening. And, you know, it involves gendered slurs and sexualized demands. And if I had said those things before, even maybe in my family or in my school, the tendency culturally would be to say, oh, it's not that bad. Maybe he was just flirting, you know. But now when that happens online, I can just do a screen capture. And when people see it, they're horrified by it, you know. And I hate to say that we have to prove it because there's a constant demand that we prove the harms that we're saying we're experiencing. But in fact, it's very hard to dismiss when it's right in your face, the ugliness. Like right now we're dealing with the horrific tide of anti-Semitism that is sweeping the world. Mm. And there's no hiding it. It's right there. So it's a terrible silver lining to the engagement model mm. that I think demonstrably leads to extremism. But it's a silver lining. Because I also think that the the difference in anger, the gender difference is that in, in politicians, male anger can be seen as powerful Absolutely. and righteous, whereas female anger looks shrill or scary. And I think this is the really interesting thing about Me Too as well, is that actually it's it's a form of civil disobedience. It's the law has not worked for us, right. so this is what we're going to do. You know, this is why we're going to accost Jeff Flake in a lift mm -hmm. and tell him our story because nobody is listening otherwise. So it's a form of backlash. Mm -hmm. And earlier when you said that there have been points in history where women have been allowed to be angry, I don't know if this is a point where we're allowed to be angry. Mm -hmm. I think just the momentum is so, so big. big and there are all these like forms now for us to show that that it's sort of a wave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I do very much worry about the backlash that is coming. Well, it's here. I, I agree with you. And, you know, if you think about women's whisper networks, they have always existed. The problem now is that they're being institutionalized, that women are demanding that they be institutionalized as a way of protecting women and putting workplace protections in mm -hmm. place. And what I find fascinating about the concern that any good, innocent man's life can be ruined by a lying woman is that the blame is being put on women instead of on institutional failures. The same institutions that have failed over and again to protect victims and to tolerate and support and reward aggressors are the institutions that are now failing men. Mm. So I actually put it in the book, welcome. You are now an honorary woman. This is what it feels like. You do not feel safe. You do not know that what comes out of your mouth is not going to be used against you. You believe that stereotypes are being used to damage you and might maybe harm your job and your reputation. I'm like, this is life. So what are we going to do? Because the, the solution is not to try and silence these women, but to build institutions that understand how they intrinsically support predation as a function of their hierarchies. But those whisper networks only existed because the law was failing. Absolutely. So women spoke to each other about these men because they couldn't go to the law. And that, like, so this is the, the bit that I'm worried about is the jump. Yes. Because I, I think there, there are actually lots of men who are, and women who are, who are worried about people being brought down mm -hmm. 
without any legal precedence. Mm. That is, you know, that isn't as a society where we should be basing right. stuff on. We've got to that point because the law isn't working. Mm-hmm. So do you think there's a way that we can harness this anger to sort of, yeah, through those institutions in a new way? I do, but I think that the maybe frightening thing to people is not that Me Too is an end, that Me Too somehow brought an end to millennia of of cultural norms, right? But that, in fact, it's a beginning. Because what Me Too is demanding is a multi-generational investment in changing norms. Mm -hmm. It's not content with taking down, quote-unquote, a bad man. It's actually a challenge to the way we think about gender and masculinity in particular. And if you think about the Aziz Ansari case, that was really disturbing to people, not because he acted in a horribly violent way, but because he was normal. And so a lot of men, I think, rightfully thought, well, if he did that, does that mean I'm this person? I was taught to be a man and to approach sex and women in this following way. And if that way I'm hearing is threatening to women, where does that leave me and my sense of identity? And that's a legitimate question that we should be addressing. I also think it's the heart of denial because we know even in the wake of Kavanaugh that men are much more likely to disbelieve Ford and to disbelieve women who tell me two stories or stories of aggression and rape. And my question is, why do good men not believe women? And I think it makes sense if you consider it from the perspective of identity protective cognition. If women, if what women are saying is true, then a lot of men interpret that as fail, failure, failure to protect women in their lives. If their, their women are saying, I can't walk down the street, I'm not safe at work, I can't travel by myself, it costs me more money to exercise because I'm constantly being vigilant, what does that mean? It means that this fundamental aspect of masculinity, which is to provide and protect, is an illusion, you know? And so to believe women is frightening prospect. It's much more frightening than believing that a few might lie. If all these women are telling the truth, my God, that means everything's wrong. Because I thought it was also fascinating watching Kavanaugh is that I don't think he was lying. No, I agree with you. I just think he did not remember it like that. And not just that, he didn't even remember her. He didn't even remember her. Which yeah. is the case in it's so such many. It's significant exactly. like, which event is, in his life. That's yeah. right. Mm. And which, women, that's all the time. Which happens all the time. And I think there are lots of men who watched that and thought, God, there are a couple of nights I don't really remember. And it's also, it's not. I think it's you're protecting women. It's also, what about your mates? Yes. What does that say about your group? That's right. And their attitude to things. I suppose the other thing I wanted to ask you about was about sort of the emotional cost of all of this. Because... All of this anger and uh, all of these stories, it's a huge amount of emotional labor for women to take on to try and prove that these things have happened. Yes, it's exhausting and traumatizing. And traumatizing for a lot of women who are rehashing things that they had processed or were very personal or they you know, just didn't really want to think about it anymore. They didn't. They really buried them. And do you think that's part of where the anger comes from as well? I think so, because if you think about Me Too... I would say Me Too is the latest step in a long line of hashtags that I think of as raising public awareness and changing what we think of as 
social knowledge. So Me Too came after Not Okay, and Not Okay built on Yes, All Women and um, Everyday Sexism. And, you know, there are many variations of these in different languages. And with each hashtag has come a global outpouring of women's stories of trauma and predation. And very often the women will say, I didn't remember this. I didn't want to remember this. But hearing Trump say what he said or seeing Kavanaugh um, dismiss this woman, and they have these almost breaks in their psyches that, that allow these memories to come out. And for a lot of men, it's quite a shock. I mean, we heard men say in the wake of Kavanaugh, I didn't know this about my wives and daughters. And in fact, part of the emotional labor goes into protecting the men around us because we don't want them to feel bad, because we don't want them to do something maybe rash in the display of masculinity that they feel might be appropriate. And also, if you're a young girl, maybe you don't want to tell your father and brothers because then the restrictions get even stronger. So there are lots of reasons why the stories aren't being shared, but I agree with you that we are at a point of immense, immense exasperation and frustration and anger. And honestly, at this point, my response is, how can you not know? Mm. Really? Like, how can you not know? If you don't know at this point, it is because you do not want to know. Yeah. It feels almost like there's going to be a switch soon. Like, just, you know, being in the at dinner with my female friends and everyone is so angry yeah. about everything. <laughs> it's like, it feels a bit like we're a moment from just downing tools. It's very exhausting. All women though. just being like, "Sod it, I can't, I can't do it anymore." But where do you think we go from here? What do you think is like the next step so, of all of this? So actually, what what I'm trying really very hard in the book to say is acknowledge that the anger is there because for a lot of women, it's very hard to even say, "I am angry," because it's so transgressive. It feels like such a violation of what it means to be a good woman, especially if you're angry about, for example the demands of motherhood as an ideal. Whether you have children or not, you're affected by the demands of motherhood, right? You're not supposed to be angry about that because that's supposed to be, quote unquote, the natural state of being for you. But if we can acknowledge that it exists, that it's human emotion, that we have the right to experience it, and then make meaning out of it so that it doesn't consume us in unhealthy ways, then you can actually take the energy. It's an immense energy that comes with this emotion. And you can use it constructively and strategically. That doesn't mean becoming a new person, a different person, learning a new skill. Literally do what you do well. If you organize, organize. If you bake, bake. If you do art, do art. If you are politically inclined, become more active. If you are in a school, pour that energy into accomplishing a specific goal. If you're in a job that makes you unhappy, either decide what you're going to do about it or leave. Because in some contexts, nothing's going to change. But in other contexts, you can build a community and you can find allies. And probably if you're mad at something at work, other people are too. And then it becomes a workplace issue, an inefficiency or a bad culture. And that's valuable information too. So mainly it's acknowledge it. Don't let it get you sick because so much of this falls into the category of pathology and use it creatively and 
and stop thinking of it just as a negative aspect. No, it's negative aspects. There's a lot of joy and creativity in anger. There's a lot of community in anger. It's, yes, related to disgust and contempt, but it is equally related to social justice, empathy, and compassion. But we don't talk about that. It doesn't have to be explosive and violent. It can be very calm and cultivating. Beyond sort of truly listening, mm. is there a role for men in this, or is this a process that women need, as you've described, need to well, go through? I mean, I think that men have more power. Mm. They have more access to resources, and they have more physical security for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so listening is a good start. But actually believing mm-hmm. is more important. I have a child who very loudly proclaimed the difference between hearing and listening one night <laughs> in uh, school. And, <laughs> and I think it's really relevant here because... In fact, there is a difference between hearing and listening, and there's yet again another difference between listening and believing. And I think what is challenging in this moment is that to believe women means to interrogate not only your own privilege as a man or power as a man, because many men don't feel powerful. They don't feel that they have power. They're also struggling every day, working very hard, subject to their own forms of oppression. But in relative terms, in almost any peer-to-peer society, men have more status, more credibility, more authority, more access to to resources. And it's hard to admit that in intimate ways because ultimately, even though we're talking about broad political issues, this has to come down to very intimate conversations. And nobody in an intimate conversation enjoys talking about power and difference. And that's really what we have to do. And men are not listening to women. So men need to speak to other men. Men need to speak to other men. And and the quality that you described of homosociality, which is the bonding, the frater- we live in a fraternal culture with fraternal norms. And calling out other men comes with great risk. Yeah, mm. Absolutely. It's, it, yeah, it's not the easy thing to do in any way. No, it comes with immense risk. And so the question is, how do we as a society acknowledge fraternity and understand its harms to men as well. There's really nothing rosy about patriarchy's demands on men. You know, it's quite corrosive to men. And so on the one hand, there's a short-term need of making sure women can continue to work and maybe, God forbid, become leaders with parity. But on the other hand, there's the long-term need to reshape social socialization and early childhood education and role models and parenting, those are huge. They're huge cultural tasks. Well, Ben, can I actually ask you a question? Seriously, we can cut this out. Yeah, 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 but yeah. how do you see the Me Too phenomenon? Is it sort of like shock overwhelming? <clears throat> Is it a bit whingy? Is it, sh- you know... Do you feel like you can relate to it or that it's something going on over there? Or is it dangerous? Mm, Crikey. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think I have enough female friends who have told me stuff that has happened to them Mm. that I don't find it difficult to believe that all of these things are happening and the evidence is kind of overwhelming. So there's no... I'm not in a position where I'm going, well... There's no way that that so-and-so didn't do that. But I think maybe, I think I do feel like I'm in a minority of of men who probably, 
whose first reaction would be that and it probably comes from the fact that like i don't know i've i think i've just always had more female friends than male friends do you have friends. sisters i don't but i went for sort of towards the end of school i went to a um a school that for the rest of the time was just all girls mm-hmm. and then it of course was you did my sixth form my sixth form let's say there was mm-hmm. it was basically me and, and it, a lot me, of girls. 10 men and like 110 <laughs> girls right and and then i did english at uni which is traditionally yeah, that's right very very female gendered, subject yeah. to do and then i did publishing which is even more mm-hmm. so and i think maybe i've just been surrounded by more of that right. sort of thing in the culture what, what but I've also had experiences, as you were saying, of this kind of homosocialization, where absolutely I've played in rugby teams mm-hmm. where there is just a culture which is quite unpleasant, but which I never felt able to go. It's very that's, hard. That's, mm-hmm. that's not how we talk about women. And right. that whole thing it goes back to that whole kind of locker room chat. Yes, that's right. Excuse, Banter. Which, yeah, yeah, which even um, yes. in Sir Philip Green today over the weekend, yes, over the said, weekend. oh, this is. Like all of these allegations, it was just a bit of banter. Mm-hmm. I can't believe people are still using that excuse yes. like four years later. <laughs> no, no, it's like, absolutely it's, all the time. It's crazy how this is still a thing. But it's incredibly, there is a certain way that a lot of men associate with each other in a kind of blokey way that is very hard to sort of it's deny. It's very denigrating. And you don't really know how you would do it. And the solution really is just to go... Well, I'm not going to play rugby anymore. Yes, that's right. <laughs> not that but I'm this going is to so change hard. the culture of yeah. the team. So I think that's some. So I think sometimes it is very. That was why I asked what we can do, really, because I I sort of feel like I'm coming from a place where I'm going. Yes, I agree. I can see all yes. of this happening, but I have no idea what myself right. as an individual can do to make it any different. But do you <laughs> do you think like so? You had this response. And I think it's very common, right? I've talked to the men I know in my life, my husband, my brothers, and individually you have these ideas and mm. you're thinking, this is very denigrating to women. I really don't like this, but there are costs and risks. But do you think that there are many more men having the same thoughts individually, but that it's just so difficult to air them openly, Yeah. right? Mm. And and that's what I think, because I keep hearing men say what you're saying. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, if you're all sitting in a room not saying that, and there are two or three men behaving in this egregious way, how do you know that? How do you even come to that conclusion, you know? And on the one hand, if you can teach boys to cross-gender empathize as children and not to perceive femininity as a degradation, which I think is the heart of the issue, Mm. then you'd grow a generation of people who were maybe less inclined to do that. Mm. But at the moment, we just have the problem you described, which is how to disrupt the sexism. I don't know whether most blokes realize that blokes who speak like that to other men don't do do it in front of women, Mm. ever. Mm. To Guys behind me in a pub queue were talking about a barmaid once and being so derogatory. And I turned around and told them off. And they were so, they were, this is a private conversation. So it was, it's not. He's just stood next to my ear. And they were really shocked yeah. that I'd heard it. So I think it can be easy to forget that they do know doing that is wrong. Mm. And they keep it private. And actually, the experiences of trans men repeatedly indicate exactly that. that they go into these spaces as men and they're stunned Mm. by the difference, stunned by the difference. But I think that's what was interesting in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape with Trump because 
all of a sudden, despite endless evidence that he behaved that way, the Republican conservative leadership had mm. to put a stake in the ground. Mm. And I, I don't think it was because of what he said, but the fact that it was now public because it was acceptable for him to say it in private. But having him not only publicly say it the way it happened when he when the tape was aired, but also explicitly connected to his status. Yeah. In the tape, he said, you can do anything yeah. because you have this celebrity or power. And I think that gave such an evident lie to the trade that they propose, which is that men are supposed to be paternalistic and protect their women. Mm. And yet here's this man who not only is talking about a woman this way, but a married white woman who could be, as they all said, our wives, mothers, daughters. Oh, God, I hate that so much. Right? I hate that so much, too. But in fact, it was not about the women at all, but about the men. Yeah. And challenging those men. And it also goes goes against that trope, which I think is running out now. But anyway, but for a long time it was, you know, well, he couldn't help himself. Oh yes, because that's a that's a planned statement. Mm-hmm. That's I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, so I can do what I want. It's not. Oh my gosh, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. I can't control myself. It's like I know I'll get away with it. Right. I wanted to talk to you about <laughs> Elliot Roger mm-hmm. because I think. We've had this wave of female anger for quite a long time. And along with it recently has has come this slightly different form of young male anger. You know, it was the 2014, wasn't it, mass yes. shooting. Um, and he wrote, he targeted women and he wrote this dossier, basically, mm-hmm. about not having, basically, access to right, sex. sex. And he sort of started this idea of the, the incel mm-hmm. as a figure who obviously historically has always sort of been right. there, but in different forms. Do you think that's a part of a result of this this anger in women? Has that been a part of the backlash? Do you think it's separate? You mean the anger that he expressed or that a response he, to Elliot Roger? The anger that he expressed and then this sort of small following that he's managed to... He's become not so somebody. Small. It's not so small. Mm-hmm. I mean, the incel movement is misogynistic. It's racist. Um, it's closely tied to white supremacist groups around the world. It is a deep expression of sexual entitlement. And it has been for a long time downplayed by mainstream media. And that's dangerous. Because the thing about Elliot Rogers that catalyzed the Yes All Woman hashtag, which trended for weeks, millions of women saying this is familiar to us, Mm -hmm. was that in his manifesto in which he suggested caging women and forcibly breeding them, um, in his manifesto, he used language that women see every day on dating sites and in their classrooms. And it was so common and so normalized that it was quite jarring and shocking. And in fact, I remember that morning so well. It was a Saturday morning and It was actually Press in Canada and the UK that first reported on his manifesto. American press didn't. There was nothing in it about misogyny or internalized racism or any of the hatefulness of what he had produced on the videos and in writing. Mm -hmm. It came later on in the day, but even then, it was almost like an aside, like he's just crazy. So we can't 
take him seriously when in fact you have to take him seriously because the ideas that he is expressing are so neatly tied up in normal behavior for this expression of masculinity and the expectation that sex should be provided, that it is women's function to provide sex on like demand almost. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that there was such a visceral response from women and we saw the outcome of that. I mean, it was really horrible. There was also quite an interesting response I I saw from more liberal men saying this is so sad because, you know, all he needs to do is learn how to talk to women. All he needs to do is to uh, learn to tell them jokes. Get better chats. No, and that still is a really dangerous way of looking at it. Because all you're saying still is you still need to persuade them. Mm -hmm. You just need to be better at persuading them. It's not questioning the entitlement. It's not questioning the entitlement at all or actually the role. And this is from, you know, liberal, nice men who cannot see how that is still. But it's the same. It's the same attitude. Right. It's just with a different varnish. Well, and it's interesting, too, because what I ended up writing about was a different way of looking at it, which is this orgasm gap. What does it mean that the largest gap in orgasms is between heterosexual men and women? So heterosexual men almost always experience orgasm, and heterosexual women are not having a good time. Mm. Lesbian women and gay men are right up there close to heterosexual men. But why the gap? It's clearly the case that women can orgasm at higher rates because lesbian women are. So why the gap between heterosexual men and heterosexual women? What's involved in the inequality of pleasure that reflects sexual entitlement. Yeah, although, and I do think the responsibility there lies on both sides. Yes, but the fact is that women are socialized to please in that specific context and to please in a specific way. Mm. And, you know, women will say that they fake orgasms in huge numbers to protect the ego of the men they're with. Some outrageous percentage of women experience pain during intercourse and never tell their partners. And that's all protecting the men from the information that might be difficult or challenging or threatening to masculinity. But I think there's protecting the men from that. And this goes back to the the repression of anger, too, is... Mm -hmm. That at a basic level is actually often about personal safety. Absolutely. You know, women are conditioned to laugh at men's jokes mm-hmm. to make them feel more comfortable because they can kill us. <laughs> right. Well, that's the, ten, that's the tend and befriend behavior. Exactly. Right. So, you know, at a base level, you're talking really, really like Neolithic base level of what's a threat and what isn't. And men are a threat to women in a right. way that women aren't to men. Well, it's the, the, the example I used actually for online, because if you think about online threats, um, in my conversations with companies like Facebook and Twitter, they started off with a consideration of who decides what safety is, who decides what a threat is, who decides what a legitimate threat is, and the people deciding those things did not count women's needs of determining risk. And women's risk perception and assessment are necessarily different. And so we have higher digital security and privacy needs than what's considered, quote unquote, normal, which is calibrated to the experiences of a straight man. Mm. Mm. 
And so marginalized people of all sorts are at greater risk as a result. But the simplest example I've ever heard is when when you walk into an elevator, if a man and a woman walk into an elevator, they're having radically different experiences in the elevator. The woman is thinking hard about being alone in this elevator with a stranger for 30 seconds, and the man's probably like checking the time on his watch because the woman does not represent a threat to him, but he represents a threat to her. And that's a constant. That's a constant difference in our lives. And so the the fight or flight, a lot of our laws about harassment and rape are based on the same difference. Mm -hmm. And so even the idea of, quote unquote, a legitimate forcible rape has to do with defending yourself physically and fighting back and having this fight or flight instinct. And that's not the way women survive. Women can't fight. We're usually generally smaller, Mm. and that would be an unwise choice. So either freeze or we have this physiological response, which is actually the release of neurotransmitters that encourage us to do things like smile Mm. and de-escalate the situation. And um, so researchers call that a tendon-befriend model. Which and works so well in the court of law. Which is what not reflected say, in is courts, that, right? Is that something is that what needs to change then? Is it that the burden of proof needs to be changed to reflect that that's a thing? Well, that's even another thing because, mm. in fact, if you've been raped, your body is the crime scene mm. and you are the walking evidence mm. of that rape. But we don't recognize trauma. We don't recognize this difference in response rates um, and and type of response. And so... The degree to which the law itself and even the structure of courtroom dynamics is optimized for men's experience of threat is immense. And it's also, it is that sort of historic thing of, and this is what you're seeing now currently with all the Me Too things, is that the worst thing a man can lose is his reputation. Mm. And that is what, you know, in rape cases where there is evidence for it, men are believed because it wouldn't it be awful for them to be a rapist. Right. And like that that's the shift we have to get past. Where it's sort of like actually that's not really as bad, to be honest, as raping somebody. That's right. that's worse. I think that's the shift. It's cultural, it's education, it's the law. And so it can feel very overwhelming. Everything has to move forward simultaneously. You can't pick one. The most common question I've gotten in the last month is, what has Me Too accomplished in the last year? And honestly, I just have to laugh, right? I mean, a year. What is a year? And first of all, it's not even a year. It's actually 10 years. We have to acknowledge the fact that for nine years, a black woman who started the movement was completely ignored Mm. in mainstream media, right? So that Me Too movement is actually a much older movement. But it's also up against millennia of norms and institutions and religion, philosophy and legal jurisprudence. And a year is nothing. I mean, that's just a stupid question on the face of it. Yeah. And the confusing... Glad we cancelled that question. (laughs) (laughs) And the the confusing... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 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 And it's that amazing, amazing trope that has been so successfully pushed of... This idea that women make make this stuff up to ruin men's lives. Oh yes, and for fame. over decades. Yeah, and for fame and for money. And I do think the best answer to that is like, can you name any one of Cosby's accusers? 
No. It is really <laughs> Nobody's doing this Nobody's stuff for fun. That. That's right. Yeah. Um, a multi-decade conspiracy among women who don't know each other to take a good man down. Mm. It's quite spectacular. Imagine if we had that power. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm riled. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to speak to oh, us. Oh, my pleasure. It was it's so a, lovely to talk to you both. It's a really strong book. I would really recommend everybody buy it and go out. And Ben, have you enjoyed our chat? How are you feeling? A lot, yeah. Um, listeners may imagine me cowering in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but actually... Actually, you should I've know he's not doing the, that. Yeah, yeah. He's not at all. He's loving it. Um, yeah, no, brilliant. All for women's anger. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. And Rage Becomes Her is published by Simon & Schuster and is out now and you should all go and buy it. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you because we have hit over 100 countries. 102. Yeah. Smashing it. Chili came to the floor. So, anyway, yeah. Came uh, to the party. Came to the party. <laughs> Chili came to the party. So, yeah, thank you for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate and subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. As mentioned, we'll have an extra episode for you next week with the interview that we recorded, the other interview that we recorded today, alongside another blockbuster. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.